Welcome to the American Cinematographer Podcast. Go behind the scenes with today's top filmmakers as they discuss the techniques they bring to the art of motion imaging. I'm Ian Stasikevich, contributing writer for American Cinematographer magazine. In this episode, I speak with cinematographer Norm Lee, CSC, and director Panos Cosmatos about their film, Beyond the Black Rainbow. Beyond the Black Rainbow takes place in an alternative reality 1983 at the mysterious Arborea Institute, where Dr. Barry Nile performs mind-altering experiments on a young telepathic girl. It's the lysergic collaboration between Stanley Kubrick and John Carpenter we never got. And now, on with the interview. First off, let's start with introductions so we know who's who. My name is Norm Lee. I'm the cinematographer for Beyond the Black Rainbow. And I'm uh, Panos Cosmatos, the writer and director of Beyond the Black Rainbow. Beyond the Black Rainbow feels like a film that I've seen before. It seems very familiar, but it's also a very strange and unique kind of film. What were some of the influences behind its story and style? Well, we look at the specific... I mean, when I was writing the film, I didn't look at anything to, that had a, I felt had more a direct influence on what I was trying to do because I wanted the influences to come out in a more abstracted way. So then when it came time to figure out the look of the film, I decided to look at how, how I wanted the film to look, which was a couple of... Uh, I wanted to have uh, a little bit of the feel of something like Phase 4 and THX 1138, something a little bit more... Uh, grimy, for lack of a better word, like Dark Star as well. And those, and then we looked at, at, at specific frames from those films and tried to find a way not to like perfectly emulate them, but to sort of capture the spirit of them. And we also did use them as a sort of color reference. What is it about the visuals of those films that you find attractive? Uh, I mean, aside from the griminess. Well, THX is not grimy, but like I, I really like the sort of long lens, uh, compressed claustrophobic look of THX and that framing of it, the sort of very artificial uh, framing. Uh, Phase 4, I just really like the color palette of it a lot. And Dark Star was more specifically for color, a few scenes in particular. And we would take those looks and apply them to certain scenes, not verbatim, but, you know, just as a starting point. Norm, as a cinematographer, how do you approach another film with the intent to adapt its color or photographic style? When Anos and I first met, he showed me uh, many different films and influences, references from um, a lot of abstract, obscure films from the 70s, 80s, all which had a pretty film look, very retro, a lot of colors. From there, he mentioned to me that we were going to probably shoot this on digitally, on the red. From there, I, I just... I'm a, I'm a film lover myself, and I really wanted to push to try to shoot film on this. I felt that all those references really needed a film look. The producers and panels, they thought it was probably a no-go because of uh, pricing and, and cost. I, I, I did some research and found that it was possible to shoot um, on 2Perf with a lot of savings, 35mm, um, so we shot Fuji. This and uh, got some costs from Technicolor and from Panavision, and it actually came out to be quite affordable um, to shoot on film. 
so that excited us. And from there, we did tons of tests to really get the, the dial to look, which obviously involved you know, various film stocks, uh, lenses, pushing, pulling, filters, and lighting as well. Let's talk about the lenses first. Panels really was looking for kind of a soft, older look, more, more, uh, nothing that he doesn't want. He didn't want anything that was very sharp. And same thing with myself. I, I just thought that to grab, to create this, this surrealistic look and sometimes nightmarish feel, there was, you, not everything should be in focus. Some things should be out of focus, but nothing that should have been tack sharp. Um, so what we used and tested, we, we, we used the Panavision Ultra Speeds, which at wide open was definitely a lot softer than, than other lenses. Um, and they're like the Primo. It, that's, that was still not, was still too sharp for us. So we always incorporated a one eighth or one quarter black promise at all times in front of the lens to bring it down even more. On top of that, we created what we uh, nicknamed Panda Flares. Uh, basically rigging two Noga arms and flaring the lens in a static position to milk it out even more and to soften it. Um, and we pretty, we pretty much did that for most of the film. I really wanted a lot of, of flares in the movie, and right before the film came out, Star Trek came out, before we started shooting. And I thought to myself, you know, maybe flares are fucking dead. Like it's, I felt almost like, like uh, Star Trek had used so much flaring that you could never use a flare in a movie again. But <laughs> <laughs> I decided, you know, this is this is our this is the movie and that I want to make and fuck it, you know. I, and yeah, like Norm said, instead of just using straight flares, we also did things just like milking out the image to give a little bit of a haze, just using a using a, a little indirect flare. How was that done? Like are you talking about like with the uh, uh with the mag light on the end of the Noga arm? Yeah. So basically yeah, two flashlights a lot of times coming from the top right or, or bottom left or vice versa. Um, also to contrast, for example, when it was restricted mode, um, the red, the red look in the whole film, which was all done with primary red gels and space lights. We like to use, we call, we, we create these little mini map boxes for the, uh, panda flares. So one would have a blue gel, one would have a yellow gel and another had a, a straight, just tungsten gel. I just want to go back for a second to the 35 millimeter thing. Like we were trying to figure out a way to shoot the movie on our budget. You know, we looked at all these, all these different formats and we looked at digital and adding, you know, artificial grain and it was killing me inside that, that we might not be able to shoot on film. And luckily I mean, Norm really saved our asses by figuring out a way to make that happen. Cause I think it made all the difference in the world, obviously. Did you do anything else to mitigate the costs of shooting on film? I mean, other than shooting on 2Perf. When we chose 2Perf, it allowed us to um, save about 50%. Um, basically, we're using, uh, we're shooting native 240 aspect ratio. So per each exposed frame is only using two perfor perforations. And in comparison to Super 16, which was another um, format we were somewhat considering, it was just slightly above Super 16 costs to shoot on 2Perf. And a little bit more than red, but I felt that it wasn't really um, something that we should even consider while shooting something um, of this style. So, Which camera did you use? So what we used were the Panavision uh, G2s. Um, and for some days, we had, we had uh, the Panastar, which was three perf for a few days while 
we had a little problem with our, our G2. And that was probably based on our, <laughs> we had a, a rig that shook the camera really violently for one of the scenes. And that may have caused some the uh, some scratching or <laughs> so. We had, well, that was um, being. That was a happy accident um, though because I I, I kept the yeah. scratches in the movie, and it looks awesome. Yeah, so <laughs> yeah. I've interviewed other cinematographers who have mentioned that there are things that you have to watch out for when shooting two perf, uh, things like flares off the gate and trapped hairs. Uh, are these the kinds of things that you had to be more aware of shooting with this format? It was fairly straightforward. Um, I talked. I, did, I hadn't shot two perf yet. Um, obviously, I read all, all about it and was drooling to shoot it. While talking to Panavision, they mentioned that actually the native resolution, I believe, was 2.66 to 1. So when we shoot two perf, we had to actually zoom in a slight bit to make it 2.40. That would obviously enhance a bit of the grain and noise, and as well, probably if anything is slightly out of focus, it would enhance that a touch as well. But because of the nature of this, this film, I think it actually it helped in all ways to bring out all those uh, so-called deficiencies. Yeah, we talked a lot about about uh, not trying to end, like trying to scale back on any kind of like image noise or you know, as far as I was concerned, anything like that that happened was a, was a plus, you know. Norm, you also mentioned pushing and pulling the film. Uh, how are you hoping that would affect the quality of the image? So uh, first of all, we used um, Fuji 400, which is, I, I feel, the, the lowest contrast uh, stock from Fuji to give us that more uh, the older look. But on top of that, we did tests where we overexposed the stock by one, two, three, four, five, six, even up to six stops. And we pulled, this, we pulled it in by about three to four stops. And um, that helped to milk the image even more. Um, and to give it a slightly lower contrast uh, retro feel. So that was how we achieved uh, the look as well, on top of all the other methods, sort of filters, lenses, um, stock. What lab did you use? Well, we, we used um, Technicolor, which I have a, a good relationship here in, in Vancouver. This was Technicolor's first two-perf show, actually. So for them, it was a bit of a experiment, and it was exciting for them. They haven't done it before, and I believe Panavision Vancouver has done a two-perf feature as well in, in Vancouver. The film is set in a kind of uh, futuristic alternative reality in 1983, and one of the ways in which you establish this world is through its media. And I'm talking specifically about the opening sequence that introduces the Arborea Institute. How did you approach the making of these films within the film? The, the shots of Mercury Arborea himself we shot on, sta on the stage, uh, kind of between other stuff almost, uh, on 35. And then later uh, we went and shot Super 8 stuff in a uh, park and uh, kind of blended them all together. Did you mix in any electronic formats? Yeah, those are the... I mean, there are a couple of digital shots in the film. We shot the effect plates on, uh, on a red. I'd, I'd actually started shooting effect plates on, with a cloud tank like a year before I came to Vancouver just to kind of get the ball rolling. And those were all shot on a red with the original sensor. The film is filled with these great old school effects, like optical style titles and, and cloud tank stuff. How much was actually accomplished in the old school way? No, I mean, there's just no way that you can cost effectively. I mean, nobody even does optical effects really anymore. And for, for me, it was more important. I mean, I'm not, I'm a, I'm a purist about the way something looks, but I'm not really a purist about how that is achieved, you know? 
just for cost reasons, I, you know, I knew that we could get the look that I wanted doing, doing it digitally if I, if I, if I, uh, if I switched in the right directions. Who shot the special effects? You know, I mean, Quantank effects are one of my favorite looking effects in the whole world, you know, Flash Gordon, Poltergeist. I thought that would be ideal for the, uh, for the acid trip sequence. So I just basically had a cloud tank built and uh, shot for a couple of weeks in my friend's workspace with him. And uh, that's what I ended up using and compositing it together with the footage that we shot later. I would describe Beyond the Black Rainbow to another person as uh, primarily visual. There's, there's not a lot of dialogue. Was it intended to be that way from the beginning? Absolutely. I, I, I had gotten to a point with movies where I felt like, like, like talking was almost being used as a crutch, and I felt that people didn't even have any clue about tone anymore. Like, they were just sort of throwing words out there at the screen, trying to fill space or something. It was very important to me to, 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 to I scaled, I scaled back the dialogue more and more as I was writing. I, you know, tried to strip it down to the absolute bare minimum. What kinds of things can be done to convey ideas? visually rather than through dialogue well to me that's just intuitive you know like I, I i needed the movie to to be to convey the ideas through images and not speaking as much as possible so i just even if i came up against a wall where it was difficult i would just keep on working at it and figure out figure out a way to do it and then i i also thought you know if the idea is not 100 percent clear without talking then i can look but it's fine by me you know because i think uh then the audience can fill in their own their own ideas a little bit. But I think there's enough information in there. All the information that needs to be in the film is there. Yeah. In a way, Norm, you're kind of speaking for Panos. Uh, how were the ideas shared and developed between the two of you? Panos and I were involved in prep for a long time. Um, and we we discussed everything in each scene, each shot in, in immense detail um, for framing and, you know, sometimes having excess headroom or someone's very far right or left in the frame. Every little aspect was discussed. So when we went into shoot, obviously there was a few new challenges, and uh, but for the most part, we were both on the same page. And on the last discussion, um, basically, this movie was a cinematographer's wet dream. I could experiment with so many things that you know most films won't allow you to do that. Um, and uh, we were really trying to push it to the max. It was kind of my, my dream film to make, and, and I was glad that I was able to be a part of it. I only want to make I only want to make wet dreams. It's the only kind of movie I want to make. <laughs> <laughs> if making this film was such a fantastic experience, what about it was challenging? Um, one of the main things that we, every single day that we were ch- uh, up against was um, reflections. The, every single surface was highly reflective. Um, there's, you know, there's a thing, things called infinity mirrors or kind of one-way mirrors. Every, every wall surface was shiny glass and there's just pretty much every, anything to, <laughs> um, it was, it was, yeah, that was, that was a big challenge. And what we had, what we did was mainly we were spending a lot more time actually trying to hide ourselves rather than, than, um, a lot of moving <laughs> going on. A lot of duvet too. Yeah, I was I was underneath the uh, do for most of the films. <laughs> um, so but it, was, it was an interesting challenge. I mean, every single day, and and I don't know if in the, in, in the cutting room if this panels actually saw me or not. And panels can probably no, tell you. I don't. Wow. See, I, so I, I was worried. I was worried. Uh, you know, about how reflective everything was, but we you know we found a way. 
how flexible was the production design? And were you able to break the sets apart or alter their textures? I decided upon this, this material that was called uh, alu panel that's basically like an aluminum. It's like a prefab material that comes in multiple colors and you can score it and bend it. And I realized, you know, that that was the only way we were going to get sort of get the machined kind of plasticky look that I wanted. So I just decided on material and then I, and, and just decided to go for it and had them design all the sets around this material, using it as a primary material. And I knew that it was the only way to get the look that I wanted for, for, our, for our budget. So I just went for it and knew we'd figure out a way to shoot once we got there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And in a way, it kind of restricted us in an interesting way, which is like as if we were almost like as if we were shooting on a location. But the, the set was modular, you know, so uh, we were able to move walls and stuff like that if we needed to. How much real estate did you have to work with? It's pretty tight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we had, um, I don't know how many square, 40 or 50,000 square feet of stage, I think it was. Um, and with that, a lot of the, to pre-light most of the stage um, and all the different sets that we had, I think we had something around 120 uh, 6K space lights all rigged with um, all to a, a dimmer board that we could control between there were each each space light was gelled a certain color you know we had obviously the restricted um, red mode we had a, a night mode which was gelled with steel green and uh, we also had tungsten so we had to be able to all switch those, all, back all and forth on the flash and all those lighting transitions had to happen like live in camera so it was almost mm -hmm. like like uh, I guess maybe if you compare it to lighting a rock show almost you know where everything had to be timed there's a flashback sequence in which the Barry Nile character embarks on a kind of ritual spirit quest. Let's talk a little bit about that sequence because it contains some of the most abstract imagery in the film. The black and white stuff, that whole scene we overexposed by about five or six stops. And surprisingly, the film star still wasn't, uh, it held, it was so good with his latitude that it still wasn't blown out enough for us. So um, in the in the DI uh, we we had to <laughs> really increase the contrast and make the whites super white and the blacks very, quite black, um, almost like ink, ink blotch painting. But I think panels might have some more to say about that scene as well. That's the, those are the, those are the buffers to the acid trip. Like those are the the 1966 flashback is in black and white, and within that there's a full the full color acid trip. And the way I dealt with the black and white footage after we had shot it was kind of like maybe the most low tech thing on the whole movie in, in a sense, because I just, I don't know. I, I took all the footage and I, and I tweaked it in, in color on Mac and then refilmed it off of a computer monitor, degraded it even further. And then we took it into Technicolor and, and tweaked it a bit more. Refilmed it how? Oh, on red, with a red. Yeah. But I don't know, like, you know, making it like super, I've always kind of been a little bit hands-on in that way. And I, I hope to be able to maintain this sort of just experimental uh, way of working, you know, where, where you can just kind of play with things, you know, because it's part of the fun. And literally, right? Because you mentioned also having to physically shake the camera. Um, we were shaking the camera um, on a rig that uh, special effects created for us. Um, it was a kind of a platform with um, two motors that really powerful motors that shook the camera. And that scene was for when Elena was using her mind power to make um, Margot's eyes explode. 
the sweet regs. <laughs> it was a, yeah, it was a, it was it was a fun um, it was an interesting rig. And uh, while we were while we were actually using that rig, um, we had I think four lights on C stands that we were consistently, you know, blasting into the um, into the lens. So it was like a, a reddish reddish um, flare, as if it was coming from her. So, um, so that that was an interesting experiment. Me and Norm actually went sure. I think into Claremont to look at their mm-hmm. their earthquake camera rig, which was just this like plastic attachment that you turn these dials that it didn't uh, it didn't really wasn't cutting it, so we had to build this like motorized monstrosity <laughs> to get the amount of vibration of it they wanted. You also said it actually ended up damaging the film. Yeah. And actually, I think it actually shook the film out of its own, basically out of the mag a bit. I mean, it was, it was still within there, but it was all, it was quite messy um, inside after when the uh, second had to um, offload the film. Did you also borrow techniques from the films that you were referencing? I'm talking about the, uh, the scene where the young girl, uh, Elena, is escaping Arborea and she at one point has to shimmy along the wall of an elevator shaft and the camera is looking straight down and the perspective is is just like a similar scene in uh dark star well i thought about doing that shaft scene in the dark star style which is basically where the set is lying down horizontally on the ground but at the end of the day i figured i actually decided against that i wanted it to feel a little bit more real so we shot it from, we actually built like a mock set that was about 10 feet tall and shot it from above, uh, which was actually a big task. And then later, uh, this effects people uh, painted in the rest of the, uh, the shaft. Dark Star, the real primary influence there was these scenes that take place inside of like a, uh, it's like a freezing room where, where the captain's head is frozen. They had this beautiful blue look to them, and that's sort of what we used as a starting point for the night mode stuff and some of the stuff that uh, takes place outside. One of the most striking things I think about the film, at least for me, is the strength of its compositions. Um, At times, they're incredibly painterly and, and, and very classically composed, and at others, it's highly abstract. Um, And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the decision-making process between the two of those styles. The thought process behind the different types of framing that I use, for example, in the scene with uh, Barry Nile at home making a phone call to the Institute. Actually, originally, this, this shot was, it took a while for us to set it up. We had all, we tried different angles, this and that, and panels had different shots in mind for it. And um, we really took a long time to set this up, but finally, we ended up finding one shot where basically he's on the phone, his eyeball really kind of edging the top lift of the frame. And he's kind of dipping in and out and just half his face is chopped off. I thought that was very effective because it showed that where his, his mind was, it was kind of split. He wasn't really in, in any kind of mental state to, to be talking to anyone. And we find out later that he wasn't really talking to anyone. The phone was disconnected. So basically that one shot I felt was a lot better to be off, very off, very abstract and, and unbalanced in order to show his emotion. Now, there's other framings in the film, especially with Alina, the main character, where she she's a lot more symmetrical. Generally, she's a lot less on the left or 
right in the frame that's too, you know, off, off balance. There to kind of contrast how, contrast Barry Niles life. And a lot of times Barry Niles is very, very anti-framed. Um, uh, you know, maybe off the left or the right. And you know, obviously having, sometimes having a ton of headroom for Barry or, or again, very left, very right, bottom left, bottom right, you know, top left, top right. It really allowed us to play with these framings to, to, uh, just to really emphasize the, the, the theme and the motion. Barry Niles' home is a complete 180-degree aesthetic shift from Arborea, but still feels within the boundaries of the film style. How did you adjust your approach to working behind the camera? As far as framing, when I want everything to have the same feel, but color-wise, uh, Norm? Uh, you know, obviously the uh, Arborea Institute was... Um, you know, lots of reds, oranges, and then kind of blues and, and, and more neutral. Um, from there, we went to more of a, in, in Barry Niles' house, where he had his depressing life with his, his wife, who he, you know, he murders. We used uh, uh, tobacco filters, as well as four-point star filters and, and glimmer glass and black promise <laughs> all at once. So we had four filters stacked in front of each other to get that, that more rustic, Feel. I also have, have a, like a suffocatingly warm feeling, you know, that seems a little bit artificial. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that sort of leathery, especially for that scene where he, where, he, where he unpacks his gear, you know, I wanted to have an almost like a cologne commercial kind of feel to it. We had, and the, the, the knife that he pulls out underneath, from underneath the bed, um, that's where we use the four, two four, four point star filters to mm-hmm. um, rotate opposite of each other to create the uh, swirling star effects on the on the teardrop knife. And obviously we had a lot of pinpoint lighting on that to bring out the sparkle. The light in the house is also a lot warmer and softer than in the rest of the film. The home was a lot more contrasty and less overhead. It was more um, obviously very low key, minimal lighting, but just keeping it nice and dark. And you were on location for this. Yes, it was an actual location. I think it was one of the coolest houses I've ever shot in. Um, an Arthur oh. Erickson house out on Deer Lake. I really wanted to shoot in it, and there's a lot of houses by Arthur Erickson in Vancouver, and this is the one that we ended up being able to get. And uh, I actually wanted a more concrete-type house by him, but uh, this is the only one we were able to get, and I think it worked out well. I think it worked, plays nicely with a sort of aging, hippie, but uh, he's a Vancouver architect. He, he's sort of legendary, at least up here. He built these very stark, brutalist, modern buildings, and this is sort of, this is a little bit out of the ordinary, this house for him, because it's like a wooden cabin, basically, but a, but a modern one. I mean, there was a lot of it that wasn't right, so I basically went by this sort of thing that I have in my mind, which I read once, and I, I wish I could remember where, which is it's, it's as important what you don't show as what you do show. Uh, so I, I basically had to hide a lot of the house to get the sort of feel that, I, that, that we wanted. Um, I think it, it worked out beautifully. We played with a lot of long lenses and, um, you know, a lot of takes that were just kept rolling and, and keeping his wires. One of the scenes that kind of comes to mind is when he answers the, the telephone and he just, he comes in and out of the frame, one eyeballs in the top left corner. We don't, we don't, we don't reframe for him. Everything it's, uh, the whole film is pretty much, most of it is uh, from static positions or sometimes we had, you know, a little bit of dolly, um, but, uh, it obviously really suited the style of the film, slow burn style. 
the whole movie was sort of, I mean, in my mind, I was like, I wanted to sort of go against what was being done at, at that time, which was a lot of handheld and dynamic camera movement. And I, I really wanted to, the whole film to have a sort of rigid, locked off mm-hmm. feeling to it, you know? I, I Definitely, I wanted the film to feel, have the feel and look of those older films, but I never thought the word retro in my mind, you know, I, I thought it's just a, a way of, of filming something that gives it a particular feel. I never, I, I wanted the the, uh, the sort of older aesthetic of it to be a little bit more subtle compared to some of these things that are being done, you know? A lot of the older films you're referencing have that certain feel because of the limitations uh, as we perceive them now uh, of their resources, uh, like slower film stock, less portable equipment, uh, things like that. Did you impose any limitations on yourself in order to achieve that specific look and feel? I mean, there were just a lot of limitations based on on the kind of images that we wanted to get. And, and like Norm said, you know, like using all these different filters and push and pulls of, of the exposure um, and, and having everything locked off, you know, it, uh, it does create inherent limitation in the way you're shooting, which I'm, which was, you know, that's fine by me, you know. Uh, I don't want to get a shot just because you can. I think that's the wrong approach to making movies, you know. After Elena escapes the Arborea Institute and Barry Nile undergoes his physical transformation, there seems to be dramatic shift in the film itself. Well, I, I, I wrote the movie in, in, a, in a pretty stream of consciousness kind of way and just tried to follow my, my instincts. And my instinct told me that, I, that I, it would be incredibly depressing for me as a viewer to watch that film and have it remain in exactly the same tone throughout. And I really felt like, as a viewer myself, I would want to see it sort of uh, metamorphosize into a, a slightly different uh, tone towards the end. And I've always loved kind of absurdist, abrupt endings, like uh, in American World from London, and they live, and and uh, I kind of wanted it to have a little bit of that flavor at the end a little bit of a sort of almost punk rock kind of shift that would kind of challenge the audience either stay with it or just completely alienate them and I'm okay with it either way that was literally the first stuff that we filmed was the first three days of shooting were the stuff of him driving around her car and the Heshers was actually the very very first thing that we filmed because winter was coming on and I, and I, I really wanted to avoid it looking too much like like winter. I had a I had a phobia that the movie was going to end an irrational phobia that the movie was going to end up looking like uh, a Vancouver movie. <laughs> and I, overcast and like bland. So I think like in my subconscious irrational fear of that, even though like everything that I was planning to do and everything we did was like the exact opposite of that stylistically. I think that, that I think that that weird irrational fear, just because of the geographic location where we were filming, kind of drove me to constantly to push it to like a further, further degree visually. But I mean, a lot of the way that that stuff was filmed just came out of budget and logistics. You know, like we used one of those moon globes, and that was really the only way to light that that environment. And, yeah. We we had uh, an eight eight and four and I think a one point two k h tungsten bloom lights. Yeah. Um, that's how we kind of lit a lot of it. 
obviously we supplemented on the ground, but um, to create more of a surrealistic feel, um, it wasn't. We didn't want to make it look like the whole field was lit. It was just more around her. <clears throat> Again, we flared the lens quite a bit with blue blue flaring um, long lenses through the through the long tall grass to get more of that dreamy feel as well. And what about the scene around the campfire with the Hesher? I wanted to try to use the approach where we could use, you know, a real, real flames to create the effect. Um, for the most part, we did use real flames. We we brought in a, a flame bar to, to create the fiery effect, and we had to also also supplement that with um, our own magic gadget, you know, firelight effect um, from the from a distance. Actually, that was more for seeing the background, um, um, the grass in the background to be, to give that effect. Uh, otherwise for, for the two characters close to camera, um, in the foreground, we used a real flame bar. Yeah. There ended up being like a, re a reflection because of the filters that we were using that, uh, created like an upside down reflection of fire hovering in the air above them, which again, I, I feel like is like a, is a, I love that kind of thing, you know, uh, and I think it sort of helped uh, create a little bit more of a dreamlike feeling. Happy accident. I wish I wish we'd done it on purpose because I like it so much. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of things we did test beforehand, which allowed us to, for the most part, know what we would get to work with um, in post. But um, some things that were we were completely blind about, and and I was I like you know the, it was exciting was all these flares that we, we, you know, rigged in front of the camera, static flares. We, we had no idea how it was going to come out. It was too strong, too little. Could we see the image? After the first few days of uh, dailies, you know, we, we knew it was working. So, yeah, we knew it was working and we, we just, I, we, we could feel how, how strong it would be or not be. But at first we didn't, we had no idea. <laughs> so, well, but all of them turned out to be pretty. Ian, about professionalism, you know, like, I think you're right. I think that this whole idea of of of, uh, of trying to make everything as as slick as possible is kind of kind of robs something of its soul in a way. You know what I mean? You have to you have to be open to more experimentation for anything truly interesting to come out out of it. You know, I think. You know, despite all the experimentation and the colors and 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 whatever we did to to make the image, um, and this applies to obviously most directors and cinematographers as a relationship is um, everything I did was to try to create the the mood and effect of the the sensory type type film that we're watching so that it makes like you said you, you feel like you're watching something that you that feels familiar or something you've you felt before but you're not sure why or how and obviously all, all of our lighting and, and camera work was for the performances to mm -hmm. to bring that out and i think that's obviously most important above all the the look and style of the film and um between all the actors and what panels did was, uh, you know, that's, I think we achieved what we wanted. That was cinematographer Norm Lee, CSC, and director Panos Cosmatos talking about their film, Beyond the Black Rainbow. This has been the American Cinematographer Podcast. Thanks for listening. You can find more podcasts, blogs, and exclusive ASC content by logging onto theasc.com. This podcast has been brought to you by the American Society of Cinematographers, a nonprofit organization dedicated to promoting the art and craft of cinematography.